you would turn to the 46th Psalm. To the 46th Psalm. Psalm 46. I just say something about the uh, Bible course that you've heard mentioned at the other um, meetings. For some years now we have been doing Bible studies on the books of the Bible, uh, which have been, I believe, a very real blessing to the folks here and a formative uh, factor in our development as a company of God's children. And uh, there are some uh, of the studies which, in fact, we have done twice in the course that we've been. We've gone over them at a sort of a five, six years later, such as the introduction to the Bible. We've been very concerned about the growing number of brethren that are uh, really seeking to serve the Lord, minister to the Lord, uh, preaching, uh, and so on, in various companies up and down the country that God has brought into being by His Spirit, but who have no actual uh, Bible co college or uh, school background and <coughs> don't want to either. <laughs> well, I quite understand because I didn't. Um, and I've always praised the Lord for it. Um, it's not to, to despise the thing, but I, they, there are perhaps reasons sometimes to be free a little from it. But we did, there is a place for teaching. And our thought was in this uh, uh, course uh, that bit by bit uh, 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 you could take uh, sort of one portion at a time, really study it. Our introduction to the Bible, we've taken authority, inspiration, revelation, aim and scope of the Bible, structure of the Bible, transmission, text, original languages, all this kind of thing. Um, and then, of course, we start to take the books of the Bible one by one. There are questions also uh, on uh, those which uh, we have carefully thought out with the one idea that you have to think uh, and have to reflect upon what you've been reading. You must study yourself. Uh, that's our idea in it. and We, d we don't want people just to say well, they'd like to start on this um, and not be serious. Um, because it, obviously from our side here, there's quite a lot of work involved in it, especially with the questions and so on. Um, but if you really do feel a need in this direction, do uh, pray about it, and if you feel sure that you're doing the right thing, step forward and uh, see Bob um, uh, about starting uh, on that. That's our idea behind that. Now shall we read the 46th Psalm. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore will we not fear though the earth do change and though the mountains be shaken into the heart of the seas, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains tremble with the swelling thereof. There is a river, the streams whereof make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacles of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her, and that right early, or at the dawn of the morning. The nations raged, the kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice, the earth melted. 
The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Come, behold the works of the Lord. What desolations he hath made in the earth. He maketh wars to cease unto the end of the earth. He breaketh the bow and cutteth the spear in sunder. He burneth the chariots in the fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. On a very hot evening, shall we just bow together? Ask the Lord to really help us. We pray, Lord, that thou wilt indeed come upon us now as dew. And grant, Lord, that every one of us may be refreshed in our heart. Uh, Lord, we would ask thee to counteract any drowsiness in the atmosphere, anything at all, Lord, from the physical closeness and humidity, uh, that thou wilt help us, Lord, to hear thy voice. I know it's my weakness, Lord. But thou hast made a promise that in weakness thy strength is made perfect. And we praise thee, beloved Lord, that thou art able here in our midst this evening to somehow communicate with us, to cause that thy word find a dwelling place in us all as a people, in each one of us individually. O oh Lord, we commit ourselves to thee. Let that spirit of thine, the Holy Spirit, let him, we pray, take full responsibility. Open a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ and give us an ear to hear what he says. Yes. We ask it in the name of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Our theme for this evening is what is God doing? I remember some years ago, Len Moles came to us and he entitled the message he brought to us, What on Earth is God Doing? <laughs> I'm quite sure that some people, uh, when they see what is happening uh, all over the world, what they see happening in our own country, might well feel, What on <laughs> Earth is God Doing? But we can take, I think, real encouragement that every time God has ever intervened in human history, it has always at the time appeared to some people to be crazy and to other people to be a heavenly visitation. There has never been at any time in the history of the church any great moving of the Spirit of God in which many of the Lord's children did not think uh, that it was somehow or other crazy. Something was wrong with it. It wasn't really of God. Or there was something that they couldn't understand. I think that's been from the very beginning. We, I'm sure, must, all of us, really seek God that we might have an understanding of the times we live in. 
it was said of the men of Issachar that they had understanding of the times. They understood, evidently, the point at which they were as the people of God in the history of the Old Covenant. What a wonderful thing it is when the Spirit of God makes us aware where we are in the onward march of God's purpose. That's really our subject this evening. What is God doing in our own day and generation? How can we serve the counsel of God in our own generation? Uh, it's quite clear that much is happening. But what is God doing through it all? And how can we be absolutely related you know, always when God has worked, there have been some of his people who have been absolutely available to him, instrumental in one sense, in all that he's been doing. And there have always been many who have come into the blessing of what the others have been instrumental in bringing. It's always been so. Uh, for instance, when the people of God were all in exile, the vast majority of them stayed in exile. They had comfortable homes, banking houses, commerce, we now know from archaeology. Uh, that, as so often is the case, much of the commercial center of Babylon was in the hands of God's people. Uh, they had uh, houses of prayer, they had places of worship, preaching of the word. Never in their whole history had their worship been so pure as when bereft of land and temple. Then they sought God in a new way and began to worship and pray and find God. But it was a tiny remnant who caught the eternal purpose of God. They caught a vision of it. And once they caught a vision of it, as always is the case, they were spoiled for anything left. They could never rest again. They uprooted themselves, sold their possessions, and made the long journey back in three waves, back to the land. A devastated land, a desolate land, no cities, the walls broken down, no temple. They went back to build, they went back to recultivate, they went back to possess the land that God had given to their fathers. It would be much easier to have stayed in the exile much easier to have stayed in the comfortable existence and indeed the pure kind of worship that had been developed there. But we must never forget that if that little remnant had not gone back, then all the great prophecies concerning the coming Messiah could not have been fulfilled. There would have been no Galilee of the nations. There would have been no Bethlehem of Ephrata. There would have been no house of God in which suddenly the Lord would appear. It would not have been there. As far as the purpose of God was concerned, the people in exile didn't affect it. They had no influence on it, but they came into the blessing of it. But it was the people who went back. They became instrumental. It's always the same. At every point in church history, there have been those who have caught a glimpse, 
not of some small purpose of God in time, but of something which spans the whole of time. And in catching a glimpse of it, they have been spoiled for anything less. Like Abraham, they've been prepared to go out into a wilderness, seeking the city which has the foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Such will never be disappointed. They may die in faith, but in the end, they will find all the values of their life forever preserved in the city. Well, now, what is God doing? Where are we? Are we serving the, the counsel of God in another generation? I know I'm walking a, a tightrope this evening. Uh, it's, it, it's difficult because some will probably say to me, Oh, are you saying we should leave this or we should leave that? Are you sort of criticizing various traditional things which, after all, God is blessing? No. <laughs> God blessed the people in Babylon very, very greatly. I'm talking about something else. I'm talking about serving the counsel of God in our own generation. And for those that have an ear to hear, let them hear. Serving the counsel of God in our own... Are we serving the counsel? Are we really related to the testimony of Jesus in our own generation? Are we really, somehow or other available to God to be instrumental in what he is doing in our own day and generation? Well, now let's see if we can answer this question. What is God doing? Here's the first thing I would like to say. The purpose of God has never at any time been laid aside. I think that needs to be said. The purpose of God has never at any time been laid aside. The purpose of God has been neither annulled in nor brought to naught by Satan, nor even frustrated by Satan. What is the purpose of God? Let's just see. Matthew 16 and verse 18. I also say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ did not say, Upon this rock I will build my church until such and such a time. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it until such a time when things will get too much for it, and after that <clears throat> I will let go of the whole thing. No, the Lord has said, Upon this rock I will build my church. And the church which he is building, as we, I believe, have seen, has very much relationship to the way we meet and the way we live here on earth. It is not just something all up there in the air, abstract, vague. It is something which has very much to do with our life here as the people of God and our relationship one to another as the people of God. That is the purpose of God. Satan is never going to be able to say, now about this purpose of thine to build the church, I made it too difficult for you. I have somehow robbed you of, the, of your glory in this matter. Never. This purpose, so plainly, dogmatically, categorically stated by our Lord Jesus Christ, stands for every part, every century of this age. 
it stands no less for the 20th century than the first. Upon this rock, I will build my church. I think of the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5 and verse 26, where he says, that Christ might sanctify the church, having cleansed it by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. He's not laid aside that purpose. That is still his purpose in the 20th century. And we have great comfort when we turn to Revelation and 19 in this wonderful vision that God gave to the Apostle John when he was at one of the darkest times in his life and when everything seemed or appeared to be lost. He saw in the end this amazing vision and he heard the voice, Revelation 19 verse 6, I heard as it, were, as it were the voice of a great multitude and as the voice of many waters and as the voice of mighty thunder saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us rejoice and be exceeding glad and let us give the glory unto him for the marriage of the Lamb is come and the bride hath made herself ready. Now that's even more wonderful for all those who sort of say, well... Um, you know, uh, it's, not, it's not easy, all this matter to do with the church, well, it's not so easy, I mean, things are so split up, so difficult, so complex, and so on. It says here, the bride hath made herself ready. Hath made herself ready. Something happened within the people of God. And all those who are in part of the bride, who've been perfected through the ages, have been held back for the last great company, us in the last phase of the age, who are going to make ourselves ready. Why, how they must wait for us. <laughs> must be quite impatient with us <laughs> at times, waiting for the closing of the age, the final stage, the top stone coming forth into its place. God has never been deterred by men, the devil, or by demons, nor even by the combined powers and authority of hell has never, ever been deterred from this uh, matter. Christ's hand laid the foundation of the church, and his hand will complete the work. When we see in Zechariah chapter 4, we see about Zerubbabel. It says in Zechariah chapter 4, if you want to turn to it, Verse 9, the hand of, hands of the Zerubbabel laid the foundation of this house. His hand shall also finish it. Jesus said upon this rock, I will build my church. Our Zerubbabel's hands have laid the foundation of this house. His hands are going to finish it. Let all hell come out against him. Let the Antichrist appear. Let this awful beast that will come over the whole earth come. Let the night come when no man can work. The fact of the matter is this. It is his hands who've laid the foundation 
of the church of this house, and it is his hands that are going to complete it. And that's why in the end there's only one word that's left in the people of God when the top stone comes forth into its place. Grace! Grace! There's not another word. They don't say as many of us would think, uh, especially in what the Lord's doing, you would think they would say glory! But they don't say glory. They don't even say hallelujah! According to Zechariah. They have only one gasp left and they say grace. Grace unto it. It's the grace of God that began the work. And it is the grace of God that kept it alive all down through the, the age. And it's the grace of God that has recovered every single thing that was lost. And it's the grace of God that's put the finishing touches to it. The top stone, of course, is the Lord Jesus himself. Furthermore, this is not just a matter of, of the invisible heavenly uh, church, but of the church on earth. It's related to us, in other words. Um, we, I won't refer to what uh, we spoke about this morning, the beginning of Revelation and the end of Revelation. I'll have to leave that to those of you who are with us. But you see, it's all related. This whole thing is related to uh, uh, the people of God on earth in our day and generation. What God has been doing is not some little thing that's uh, like a watertight unit or, or uh, entity in each century, in each generation, but it is a continuous thing which he's been adding to, adding to, adding to, adding to. And we now are at the end of something that is absolutely marvellous. Some people say, oh, I do wish I'd lived in the days of Pentecost. I do wish I'd lived at the beginning and I'd heard the Sermon on the Mount, seen Lazarus raised from the dead, being there on the day of Pentecost. Do you really wish that? I don't. I'm very happy to be here now. <laughs> That's my thing. I think it's absolutely wonderful to have been privileged to live in the age in which we are living. Because always, always it seems that when we live in the time of God's moving, we appear somehow to become familiar with it. And think, well, is it anything? Is it anything? There were evidently people in the early church who thought the same. There was an Ananias and a Sapphira. They obviously didn't think too much of it, otherwise they wouldn't have lied in the way they did. And yet they were obviously there right at the very beginning. They saw all these mighty things. It says that when they dropped dead, great fear came upon the whole church. I should think so. <laughs> Someone said, if God had dealt with everyone like he dealt with Ananias and Sapphira, there would have been an awful lot that would have died. God has been working according to purpose. So God is still working today according to that purpose. We are right at the end uh, of the age, as far as we can see. Now, of course, some people will immediately say to me, oh, but people have always thought they were at the end of the age. Yes, that's perfectly true. But people have not quite had the signs we've got. We've got two extraordinary signs, which they never had. One is the creation of the state of Israel, and the other is the taking of Jerusalem and bringing back under Jewish control. These two signs have never been fulfilled in the whole of this age, until <coughs> our 
generation, literally in our generation, from 1948 and 1967. Therefore, you and I are living in the age of fulfilled signs concerning the very last phase of this age. Now, God has always been working right through the age. And before we just ask ourselves or answer the question, what is he doing now? I think it's good for us just for one moment to think of what he's been doing. Never at any point has the testimony of Jesus been wholly lost right through the age. It's fashionable in some quarters to think that, uh, that somehow or other the testimony of Jesus was almost completely lost until such and such a date, generally the beginning of that particular denomination. At that point, it was marvellously restored. And generally speaking, the more extreme and wild and mixed the denomination, the more emphatic they are that the testimony was restored uh, when they came on the scene. But the testimony of Jesus has never at any time been wholly lost. Even at the darkest part of church history, there has been a group somewhere some small group, some remnant in which that testimony of Jesus was kept alive by the Holy Spirit. Unfortunately, many of the records we have of those very early days were destroyed by Orthodox or Catholic authorities. And so we can only go on the records we have, which are their records of what they said the people believed. And knowing, even in our own day and generation, what some say we believe and uh, um, uh, do, I don't know whether we can wholly trust uh, those records. Um, the fact of the matter is this. Joel's prophecy was to characterize the whole of this age. I think everyone would agree with me here. Joel's prophecy, which we have, of course, in Acts, we'll look at it in Acts and chapter 2. Verse <coughs> uh, 16, this is that which has been spoken through the prophet Joel, and it shall be in the last days, saith God, I will pour forth of my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Yea, and on my servants and on my handmaidens in those days will I pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heaven above, and signs on the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, before the day of the Lord come, that great and notable day. And it shall be that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now we know that the first part of that prophecy was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. But we are also just as well aware, surely all of us here, that the last part of that prophecy was not fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. The sun was not turned to blood. Um, the great and notable day of the Lord did not come. It was not actually then that the day of judgment came. We know that. The sun was not turned into darkness, the moon into blood. We have, of course, other things the Lord Jesus himself said in Matthew 24, elsewhere, Mark 13, 
we have uh, the record of what the Lord Jesus said would happen to the sun and the moon before the coming of the Son of Man. He said, then shall they see the sign of the Son of Man in the heavens, and then they shall see him coming on the clouds with great power and glory. So evidently this prophecy of Joel is to characterize the whole of this age. Now what does it mean? What does it mean? Does it just mean visions, dreams, prophecy? Is that all? Of course not. That's only the details. The heart of the matter is this. That out of heaven into the people of God has come the life of God. As, it's as if the Lord Jesus, as it were, is living his life again in his own people. That's what we've been talking about over these days. And it is the Holy Spirit's prerogative to see that that expression and manifestation of the Lord Jesus Christ is kept alive right through this age. So on the day of Pentecost it began. And now if you look right through the whole of church history, you will find it is the Holy Spirit's job to see that that testimony of Jesus is kept alive. And he does it again and again and again and again. If we were to tell the whole story, it will be absolutely wonderful. There are some who believe that the book of Acts was never finished. That it was open-ended. And that in fact it, it's being recorded in heaven. One day when we, when we finally uh, see the Lord physically, we shall also hear the whole story. What a day. Some people think they'll be bored in heaven. <laughs> My goodness me. <laughs> Knowing some of the saints I've known, um, you couldn't be bored in heaven. Just get a few of them together. And um, half of eternity would be gone. <laughs> the, fact of the, matter is, the fact of the matter is this, that the whole story of the history of the church, the inner hidden story of how the Holy Spirit has kept alive this work, and how he's watched over the formation of the city, the producing of the materials out of which the city, the bride, is produced, is going to be one of the most wonderful causes for worship. When we hear it, when it's unfolded before our eyes, and we hear the whole story of this little group and that little remnant, that at their time became like the little widow woman with her two mites, the vindication of God in a day of decline. Joel's prophecy concerning the, the coming of the Holy Spirit upon us is something which characterizes the whole of this age. And we see it in the history of the church. That it has always been uh, the Holy Spirit coming upon believers which has started a whole new move in the right direction, a whole new advance, a new phase, if you like. We used to say years ago, when we felt very lonely, uh, not so long ago, 1956, 57, 58, when we were just a completely ostracized little group that no one would touch with a barge pole, and they used to think we were weird, and they used to say, they're, they're on a road. That was what they said. Now they say they're charismatic. But then it was honor oak. You mustn't go near them. They're honor oak. Yeah, that was our most dreaded disease. <laughs> <laughs> and evidently anyone who came anywhere near to it was in danger of the contagion. 
getting infected. So we were a little group, and you know, everything was against us. You only had to mention the church or the nature of the church. People looked at you queerly. No one talked about it. It was not the subject of books. It was not the subject of conferences. No one mentioned it. You were thought to be really weird if you said anything about the church or even thought along those lines. We used to say when we studied, when we took, you know, the books, I'm telling you, we got to the book of Joel. And suddenly it began to dawn upon us. The only way that God would be able to overcome all this prejudice, all this bigotry, and build his church in our day and generation, especially in the so-called homelands, as opposed to the mission field, <laughs> the only way God could do it would have been on another Pentecost. It would have to be a kind of sovereign moving of the Spirit of God such as we'd never seen in the whole of church history that would be worldwide and would, as we said, act like an ejector seat in a jet, pushing people out into another realm. <laughs> Just ejecting them out of their little organization into another realm of spiritual infinity. And that's what happened. We heard the most amazing stories a little while afterwards. We heard of people, I know it sounds irreverent, but we heard of people taking their dog out for a run on the common and suddenly stopping. And then suddenly, the Holy Spirit fell on them. And there the dog looked at them. While there, <laughs> rapturous praise to God. We heard of another brother in his study, thinking about the lunch hour meeting, fell forward onto his desk. Full of the Holy Spirit. People said, oh dear, it's tongues. <laughs> but the fact was this, that every time we spoke to people, they didn't just spoke, they didn't speak about tongues. They just, we suddenly found we'd got a brother. Whereas before they'd been a, a distance, we suddenly found, we've got brother. It was fellowship, real fellowship, hunger, hunger for God, hunger for fellowship. We couldn't but take note of it. Well, uh, all we can say is that if we look at the whole of church history up to date, the Holy Spirit has never resigned. He has received a commission from the risen Christ to see this work through to completion. And there's no one better. Remember, he was the one who went over the face of Chaos and darkness, emptiness, confusion, and brought out of it order, light, life. There's no one better than the Holy Spirit. He's been given the job. Blessed be the Lord. He has been given the job of seeing this work right through to its completion. After the first great outburst, and the uh, great reaction of Satan uh, in seeking to destroy the people of God by frontal assault, by simply blatant persecution. The enemy changed his tactics and sought to take over the church from inside. Constantine got converted. We are not ever quite sure whether it was a real conversion. 
But something happened to Constantine, and Christianity suddenly became, uh, in uh, the third century, respectable. Fourth century, respectable. From that point onwards, it was the state religion. People speak of it as the darkness that descended. But you know, if you read some of you, The Pilgrim Church by E.H. Broadbent, you will find a whole lot of the most unpronounceable names, names, by the way, that none of these people took themselves, but which were given to them by everybody else. Paulicians, Bogomils, <laughs> Montanists, Donatists, Albigenses. Oh, unpronounceable names. But you suddenly find, why? You read between the lines and you find they've got similarities to all that we understand and know. We suddenly find that the torch of the testimony fell into their hands and they kept it alive, sometimes only for a decade or two, to pass it on. In all that period of darkness, it was the Holy Spirit working, keeping alive something all the way through. Except for these remarkable movements, bitterly persecuted, and some remarkable saints within the established and institutional, all was darkness. It was a mountain of difficulty. Who art thou, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? Thou shalt become a plain. It was in the 14th century that God began in a new way. Wycliffe, Haas, the first rumblings of something to come. It was Wycliffe who was the first person to put the, what, the Bible into a language that at least some of the educated people could understand. And all over the country, there began this movement that they called the Lollards. We're not quite sure why they were called Lollards, whether it was because they lolled. <laughs> <laughs> there are amazing similarities in all these things. <laughs> Somehow or other, the people were so full of the spirit that people said, Lollards. But they went all over the country preaching, and it is estimated that 50% of the British people believed on them and were in sympathy with them. The church so hated Wycliffe that it had a special session presided over by the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Archbishop of York, who was brought all the way down, very bad communications in those days, from York. And they had decided to burn Wycliffe as a heretic. But just as they were about to sign the declaration, London had one of its only two earthquakes. And the archbishops and bishops were so frightened <laughs> that they adjourned the session and never reconvened it. And Wycliffe died in peace in his own bed. One hundred years afterwards, they dug up his bones, desecrated them and threw them in the river. Huss suffered. All over Czechoslovakia and Central Europe. The truth went everywhere. You know, they called Huss to Lake Constance, giving him a safe conduct. And when they got him there, they burnt him at the stake. But they had set on fire a light. A light was lit, which was never to go out. It was the testimony of Jesus. They couldn't stop it. Before long, we have Martin Luther. We have Trini. We have Calvin. 
We had the whole great burst that spread over the whole of Europe. Something happened that men and women thought it was impossible. It was impossible for such a thing. They thought it was impossible for such a thing to actually happen. Vast institutional system that ranged over the whole of Europe. But listen, when God says something's going to be done, it gets done. The wonderful thing is God used economic and political things. The whole, the, the whole unrest in all the nations was against the sort of um, common market of the day. Forgive that. <laughs> but it was. You see, there was, there was one Europe. There was one Holy Roman Empire in one sense. True, Scandinavia wasn't in it and Scotland wasn't. <laughs> but uh, the rest was. And uh, it was one great unified system ruled by Rome. And underneath came all this political and economic pressures. We want to be free, we want to be free, we want to be free. Give us regional government. God used it. There would have no, been no reformation if there hadn't been all those undercurrents. We had that great outburst. What did God recover? He recovered the most glorious truth. At that time, it seemed so odd and peculiar. Justification by faith. It's a household word with all of us today. No one argues about it. Indeed, we're in, we're in danger of forgetting its real meaning. We're so familiar with it. We think, oh, it's kindergarten stuff. We all understand that. But we don't. It cost thousands their lives. But the Holy Spirit recovered something which was right at the foundation of all he was going to do. He kept the light, the torture light, through the years. But when that happened, it was like a great burst of light that went over the whole of Europe. It affected even the Roman Catholic Church. Cleaned it up quite considerably in one way. Of course, here we have the Puritans and all that they brought to us. Their great accent on the intercession of Christ, the sovereignty of God, the word of God, and so much more. <laughs> I wish we could stay and talk and talk about it. God recovered one thing after another. The Presbyterians, they recovered for us some idea of at least some kind of New Testament order. They'd been completely lost. The Congregationalists, unfortunately, the whole thing broke up, as you know, and split off into three or four different groups, mutually opposed. Congregationalists established the whole principle of the independence of each congregation. The Baptists established the whole point of believers' baptism. It's not as if that was a newfangled thing. It's been kept alive all the way through. Some of these strange-sounding names. They came burst into life. And then the whole thing began to ebb. Man took over. It all became institutionalized, traditionalized, denominationalized. And then, 100 years later, in 1646, another great move of God began in our country. In many ways, it was a move that was a reaction against Puritanism. Puritanism had gone so far in the matter of, uh, that it had become really legalism, outward formalism. In 1643, 
a young man began seeking for God. His name was George Fox, greatly despised by many evangelicals as really questionable if he was even really a Christian, so they say. My goodness me, let them go into the library and read some of the books we've got. Some of them never been republished. Some of those man's messages would stand up to with the message of any great evangelist today of the very first order. What happened? He saw, because he was so disgusted by some Puritan friends who were drunk and yet were talking all about the word of God. For three years he saw, wandering like a hippie, up and down the country. Oh, nothing new under the sun. <laughs> seeking, 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 until suddenly it happened. And God revealed himself to him. He says it like this. It pleased God to reveal his son in me. And from that moment, something began which was to spread over the whole of the British Isles. The Quakers are the most remarkable people. They believed in silence, they believed in waiting on God, and yet they believed in the gifts. They didn't believe in singing because they were so afraid of, of, of what they'd seen, all the choirs and all the professional singing in church. So they were very much against it, no singing. But the amazing thing is, and this should correct every one of us, we love singing. We believe it's part of the ministry of Christ, to sing and to share uh, the Lord in song. But they would have no singing and no musical instrument at all. Yet as they waited in quietness upon God, the power of God would come upon us all. The whole congregation shook as they sat. And this is why they were called Quakers. LAUGHTER one version of it anyway. The other version is, of course, that a Quaker said to the judge, you should quake before the Lord. And he said, I am no Quaker. <laughs> That's the other. That is the official. Those are the two official explanations of the word Quaker. But the wonderful thing was that these people persecuted. At one time, there were 16,000 Quaker men in prison. 16,000 out of quite a small population in prison. It spread every part of the country into Cornwall, into Devon, up north, over into Ireland, even to Norway, across into Germany and France, across, of course, to the United States. Everywhere it went, the impact upon uh, the unsaved masses was tremendous. And then, like everything else, it died. Of these and the vows became a legalism. The hat and the shoes with the buckle became a dress. It became a denomination. In 1738, Wesley got converted in Fetter Lane, sitting in a little meeting, listening to Peter Burma read the preface, Luther's preface uh, to the Roman letter. He felt a strange warming of his heart and the quest for God in John Wesley's life was over. He'd found God. With the Wesleys began and Whitfield began another great move that was to spread over the whole of the British Isles and the United States and over much of Europe and which was to preserve these islands from the French Revolution, really, according to many historians. What did they recover? Just like the, the Quakers had, had, without any organization, no Lord's Table, no baptism, they'd found an inner life in Christ that bound them together, 
sharing together. Now the early Methodists began to find what they called the class meeting, where they would share together. One a hymn, one would lead in prayer, another would praise the Lord, one would give a testimony. Wesley, the, John and Charles Wesley said, when the class meeting in Methodism dies, Methodism dies. It died at the beginning of this century. And with it, Methodism virtually died. It was the most amazing thing that happened. Think of the Wesley, uh, the hymns of the Wesley. Don't you find an echoing in your heart to them? Don't you find that there's something, you might, well, this is wonderful. Does, does, does John ever speak of Methodists? Never! In his journals he says, I travel from the people of God at Nottingham to the people of God at Leicester. Just like the Puritans had said, the Church of God at Gray's Inn. We've got the books if you want to go and see them. <laughs> first publication, first editions, and there it is at the bottom, Minister of the Gospel in the Church of God at Romford, minister of the gospel or of the word of God in some other place, in some other place. It's amazing. You see, there's some similarity in every one of the early beginnings of these moves before they crystallize and die. Uh, Methodism got split into two, unfortunately. Whitfield on one side, and on the other side, John and Charles Wesley, and, and, and the other but not before a most amazing work had been done. When, Charles, when John Wesley went to Boscastle, so evil were the people, so vile was the whole of Cornwall, living very much on shipwrecking, that when he preached, it was the one, one of the few places he had to jump on his horse and only just escaped with his life. Within a year, the whole of Boscastle was changed. With a chapel in the lower part and a chapel in the higher part. <laughs> and the whole place went over to the people of God. It happened everywhere. But it died. At the beginning of the 18th century, another remarkable thing happened simultaneously. Dublin, Plymouth, Bath, Bristol, it was the beginning of what we now call the Brethren Movement. Very beginning, J. and Darby, W. Newton, Muller, a little later, Anthony Norris Groves, Robert Cleaver Chapman, tremendous men. It was one of the really great moves of the Spirit of God, a recovery of the of the nature of the church to a certain extent, an understanding that we as believers should meet simply as believers, and that we should hold our arms wide open to all our brothers and sisters simply because they were brothers and sisters. Brethrenism was one of the movements of the Spirit of God which was destined to make a colossal impact upon the Christian world. Not only in the authority of the Word of God, but in the sufficiency of the Word of God. For the brethren made this great point that it was not only authoritative, but it was absolutely sufficient. Nothing was written within it that had not some bearing upon us in our day and generation. You could not disobey any part of the Word of God without spiritual loss and 
Brotheranism really in many ways had much to do with the second evangelical awakening, which was to sweep over the whole of Britain, Ulster, Britain, Scotland. Edwin Orr estimates that nearly a million people were saved in the end by the second evangelical awakening, taking everything into account, and the largest number of them went to the brethren. It's amazing when you think about it. In 1904, 1905, there was the Welsh Revival, beginning in Wales. It had a counterpart in Scandinavia and later in the States. And out of that came the Pentecostal movement in 1906, generally accepted to be the beginning of the Pentecostal movement in Los Angeles. Their great distinctive contribution to the fact that the gifts of the Spirit have not ceased. Of course, the gifts of the Spirit never have ceased. But that would be too big a subject to go into, I think, now, but they never have. The fact is that people like Montanists and Bogomils <laughs> and Waldenses and Huguenots had all known uh, such manifestations of the Spirit of God. And so had the early Wesleyan, and certainly the Quakers had. And in the middle, and early part of the 19th century, the Irvingites had certainly known something. A.B. Simpson, perhaps one of the most spiritual men uh, at the end of the last century, had paved the way for very much of this by writing and writing about the, the fact that he believed there was such a thing as healing. And also he believed in a baptism in the Holy Spirit for power. There are many other things. We haven't talked about the Salvation Army. We haven't talked about the Holiness Movement. All kinds of things all offshoots, as it were, of these various things. The Keswick Movement, many other things. What's happening in our own day? Some wonderful things, really. But before we just come to that, I would like to mention one or two people. I, I would like to mention Mrs. Penn Lewis. Extraordinary enough, a lady with the most ex outstanding gift of teaching. <laughs> so much so that she had conferences for servants of the Lord, where, which were nearly all men and which she took. <laughs> Mrs. Penn Lewis was destined in many ways to make a contribution to Christian life in this country and indeed abroad, which was tremendous. Just at the point where liberalism was cutting out the whole uh, preaching of the cross in such a way that the cross was a sentimental thing. She came in with this whole matter of the cross as absolutely central to all life. Not only to salvation, but all life. If you've never read any of Mrs. Penn Lewis's books, do so. They're readable and their, their value goes far beyond the little booklets that they are. There are others too. Some of you have bought 
Austin Sparks books. He learnt very much from Mrs. Pendlewood, and indeed was at one time schooled, as it were, to take over when she died. But he began to see more than perhaps she did. He began to see particularly this matter of the eternal purpose of God. Not only the centrality of the cross, but the purpose of God and the nature of the church. His was a very uncomfortable ministry. For 40 or more years, ostracized by the whole evangelical world, he ministered on these things, rejected by and large by the majority. He died a few years ago, I believe in faith. We always felt that in the end, what he saw, would finally come to pass. What about our own day? Well, we could speak, of course, of Watchman Lee, these great indigenous movements that began in China, in India, elsewhere. Again, Mr. Sparks had very much effect upon some of these by his writings and his life. In China, there was a church in every city by 1950, what the missionaries had not been able to do in 200 years, within 20 years, had been done by the Spirit of God. Watchman Nee died this year after 20 years in prison. He himself said in his perhaps most famous book, The Normal Christian Life, God puts his greatest ambassadors in chains. We think they should be on platforms everywhere preaching, preaching, preaching. But God takes a risk and he puts them in chains and keeps them in chains till the end. I once asked someone who had very much to do with Watchman Nee, one of the missionaries who was closest to him, Elizabeth Fishbacher. I once said to her, do you think he'll ever be released? Never, she said. He will never be released. His most valuable ministry is being offered up now. He died in faith. But what has been happening more latterly? All kinds of things. First of all, the whole evangelical world began to get the jitters. Now only God could do that. <laughs> For those of you who know the evangelical world well, you know that the only possible way to give them the jitters would be something from heaven. God did it. Do you know what he did it? How he did it? By two extraordinary things for which we should always thank God. The World Council of Churches, on the one hand, and the second, Ecumenical Council of the Vatican. John Pope John XXIII terrified the evangelical world as we know it. Why? Because on the one hand we had the World Council of Churches using scriptures for the first time about the unity of Christ and the unity of all believers, of all Christians, whilst not really believing in the authority and sufficiency of scripture. Scriptures that evangelicals had never taken seriously, they began to plug. 
They spoke about the coming world church, the reunification of all Christendom. The evangelicals laughed, scoffed. They said, well, this is not right. But God was using it. Why and how? God was using it to make the evangelicals rethink. What? We think what? We think, what is the church? They had never thought. And so, from about 1958, 9, conference after conference after conference, book after book was turned out in evangelical circles, what is the nature of, the uni of, of our unity? Unity in the dark. Uh, um, what is the church? How the church should meet? What is the nature of the church? We'd never heard of such things before. You go look in the library. You'll find there are very few books on these subjects, and then all of a sudden, the whole lot of paperbacks. <laughs> Evangelical world got the jitters. Started producing all kinds of things. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones began to speak about the sin of denominationalism. For the first time, a really well-known and respected Christian leader said that to be divided on denominational grounds was sin. When the Vatican Council started to talk about us all as separated brethren, instead of heretics, <laughs> that greatly upset the evangelical world. And when they began to make advances, that took them completely off guard. Those were two things God has been using. On the other hand, there's been this pouring out of the Spirit all over the world. Now, here is another interesting thing. It has not begun with particular men, or one particular man, or a particular place, but quite simultaneously, in different parts of the world, God has been moving by His Spirit. And the wonderful thing about this particular movement is the sovereignty of it. One after another, servants of the Lord knocked out. <laughs> and then when they come round in another world, <laughs> only God could do it. It wasn't that they all went to a particular brother or all went to a particular conference and got the blessing. It was that God began to do things all over the place. When we first began, to meet in a home was considered taboo in, uh, in, 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 in evangelical circles. You know, you all. Meeting in a home. Oh. But now all over the country, people are meeting in homes. Wherever you go, there's, a, there's, a, there's a much problem connected with it too. But everywhere you go, from Land's End almost, right up to Scotland, people are meeting in homes, Bible study, prayer, fellowship. When we had to be registered with the government some years ago, we couldn't think what we could call ourselves, but we were told by our solicitor, you've got to have a name. Oh dear, we thought and we thought, we didn't want a label, we thought, we're so frightened. If we have a, a thing, if we put a label, I'll know what to do. So in the end we thought, well, it, it sounds too big to say the Church of God in Richmond. 
I'm terribly superior and exclusive, you see. So we thought we'd call ourselves Christian Fellowship in Richmond. So in 1950, I think it was two or three, we were registered as Christian Fellowship in Richmond. <laughs> Now, all over the country, wherever we go, we see Christian fellowship, Christian fellowship, <laughs> Christian fellowship. Well, we haven't done anything about it at all, but it, people might well say if they were coming, they say, what's this new denomination, Christian fellowship? Everywhere. It's not anything to do with us, of course. Isn't it extraordinary? Wherever you go. And the most amazing thing of all is we can all get together just like this. We don't, many of us don't know each other, and yet we all feel we belong to each other. There's no question of what are you. Oh, you're a Baptist. <laughs> <laughs> oh, a Pentecostal. <laughs> There's none of that at all, is there? The whole thing's gone. Now, one, another wonderful thing is God is using political and economic things, sort of moral things as well. For instance, have you noticed that the whole thing that's spreading right through the new generation is participation? Participation. Universities, everywhere, participation, participation, participation. People must participate. Even the BBC now started all these phone-in programs. Participation, participation. Everyone's interested in participation. We don't just want to sit and listen. We want to participate, participate. <laughs> but that's the church from the beginning. But you see, for so long we've been used to the one-man band. And then... Suddenly it all starts happening. God is doing it everywhere. People are participating, contributing. There's a life coming out of the body, from the grassroots, as it were. God has not stopped. Well, now that finally brings me to say this. What is, what then is God doing? I think he's working in such a way uh, that the work, will be completed. The end is going to correspond to the beginning. One of the most interesting things I remember is when I was in um, Lin Linton and Lindmouth. You, many of you will remember that tragedy some years ago when suddenly after three days of rain uh, the waters and Exmoor built up and up and up into a 30-foot wall and suddenly plunged down the river, carrying away bridges, sweeping down into Lindmer, carried half the village out into the sea. The loss of life was terrible. I was very interested to find that they had changed the course of the river. And when the great flood came, it went back to its old course. When we look on church history, this is what we've done again and again and again. There comes the flood, and then we turn the course into what we feel to be right. It becomes institutionalized, organized, denominationalized. There goes, and then when the new flood comes, breaks right through and goes back to its old course. And every single time you find in the beginnings of all these great movings of God, the similarities, the, the materials for the city have been produced. Gold, precious stone, pearl, it's all coming out. All the principles are there. Do you understand? <laughs> it's all there. I've often wondered what it would be like if we could get them all in for a conference. 
George Fox, John and Charles Wesley, George Whitfield. I'm sure that if we could get them all together, you know, far from them all falling out, what they'd fall out with is the, mo is the modern adherence. I think you'd find that they would be absolutely at home when the Spirit of God is at work. God says in his word that the latter glory of this house shall exceed that of the former. He said it, of course, of the temple. But you know that last temple that was built in Zerubbabel's day was much poorer than Solomon's temple. But God said its glory was greater. Where, wherein then lay its glory? In the fact that to that temple the Messiah I believe that the latter glory of the house is going to exceed that which was built, founded, as it were, at Pentecost. Not because it will be more extensive, but simply because the quality will be deeper. It will have cost us more. And it will be to that house that the top stone will come. What then can we say when we look at all this. What do we need? I put down just a few things here. Warnings and encouragements. The warnings, what can we learn from what God has been doing? Vision determines how far we go. Every one of these movings of God, it has been the vision of the people that's determined how far it's gone. And if there's been limited vision, the uh, length and power and vitality of what God has done has been limited. Or again, I don't think the Lord, it appears that the Lord is not interested in keeping things alive. I mean, if the Lord had wanted to, he could keep these things, I suppose, alive. But it seems that once the Lord's got the first things he wants, the materials he wants, he seems to be quite unconcerned about it. He blesses it. You know, it continues on. Most of them have lived over into the 20th century. And he blesses it here and there. But it seems that the Lord's not very interested in keeping the thing alive. As some. I remember once Bach Singh was taken aside by a rather fiery missionary. And she said to him, Well, all you're doing is starting a new denomination. And, uh... I was present and he said to her, no, no, we're not. We're just Christians. We've got no membership, he said. No label. Yes, she said, but of course you're starting a new denomination. Why, she said, when, you've, when you're dead, she said, there'll be a, a, as hard and fast a denomination as anything else. I've never forgotten his reply. He said, yes, you're quite right. He said, and then he said, the Spirit of God will come upon some young man and we shall kick him out. And the whole thing will start all over again. <laughs> <laughs> and that finished her. <laughs> Another warning from church history is to think that we are it. That somehow or other what God is doing in our generation is exclusive of everything else. Everything else has failed but us. May God preserve us from such an attitude.
May we see that we are but part of what God has been doing. And we have a heritage that they at the beginning didn't have. We've got something which has come through much sacrifice. Never, give, never overthrow it. Never give up the hymns that we've got. Uh, the other things we've learned, all these things that have been contributed. One of the dangers of the present moving of God is that we become queer. Extreme. In the sense that we start to develop novel things. Never heard of before. God has been recovering, recovering, recovering. What is the last thing he's going to do? He's going to recover the vessel. He's got the inner things. And now finally, He's been working from the heart to the circumference. And it appears to me that the last great recovery is the whole matter of the nature of the vessel. Isn't that what God is forcing us to see? What is the church? How does the church function? How do elders uh, emerge? Well, how do we recognize them? Uh, all these many practical matters, we're all bothered about them, aren't we? I hope so. <clears throat> These are the things that are most important. It's the vessel. I don't know if there's something else after that, but I'm quite sure of this, uh, that there's one thing we know uh, we shall see, and that's the glory of the Lord. What should we do? We should commit ourselves. Lock, stop. Now, there may be some here who say, well, I'd be most upset by what you've said. I, I, I'm in one of those denominational things. And really, quite honestly, what you've said this evening has rather upset me. But no, listen, you don't have to be upset. I believe that God does call some people, honestly, to stay in those things. You know, Daniel never went back with them. He stayed in exile. And yet he was instrumental in getting them back by prayer. Yet he never went back. He overlived their going back and saw them go back. But he never went back. We can never be legal in this matter. Every man must do that which he knows to be right in his own heart before God. But as far as I'm concerned, I know that what God has said to me. And I know I can't be disobedient to that heavenly vision. I don't know how God has spoken to you, but I can only say you can't be disobedient to the heavenly vision. God wants people who will commit themselves lock, stock and burn for what he wants. Forgive the term lock, stock, and battle. But he wants you utterly, utterly. Not just that you might be satisfied, not just that you might have a blessing, not just that you might have joy, that you might have peace. He wants you to commit yourself, whatever the cost, whatever the sacrifice, that he may do in our day and generation what he wants to do. May God speak to you in the quietness and challenge you. May every one of us know where we should be in this matter. Shall we pray?
A moment of quietness. I can't help feeling that perhaps, whilst we're bowed in prayer, that God would like us to make some indication to him of, our, of the response in our heart. We may not understand all that he said, but we, in our own hearts, we just know if God has really been speaking. We know that, we know in our hearts if it really is something that is important. If God has really been speaking to you and you want to commit yourself to this purpose of God, his purpose in our day and generation, let's just stand up in his presence. Remember the cost. One thing to come into blessing, it's another thing to commit yourself to God's purpose. Lord, we commit ourselves to Thee. Oh, we pray, Lord, Thou who knowest our hearts, take note. And Lord, if thou art saying to us, Arise and build the house of the Lord thy God, we pray, Lord, that thou wilt anoint us and equip us to do it. Not in any strange or extreme manner, but Lord, those who walk before thee and with thee, Lord, we commit then what thou hast been saying to us this evening into thy hand. Thou knowest what's going to cost every one of us, Lord, who has signified something this evening before thee. Oh, Father, we know that thy grace is sufficient. The Lord said that to those who will be faithful and obedient, he will make them pillars in his temple. Pillars that can take responsibility. Pillars that can support the whole structure. Pillars of strength. Pillars of glory. The Lord said that he will make such pillars 
in the house of his God. Lord, we pray, do it. By thy spirit, do it, Lord. Only thou canst take a Peter and put rock into him. Only thou canst take us and put the rock of thine own character and life into us. Do it, Lord, we pray. We ask it in the name of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.